There is a wonderful liberation that the Father has set us free from the law of sin and death through the work of Jesus Christ, allowing us to be indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We've entered Chapter 8 of our study of the Book of Romans. In this chapter, the Christian's redemption from the bondage of sin is declared, the power of the Holy Spirit is proclaimed, and the extent of God's love is revealed. Yesterday, we had just cracked open the chapter and saw that marvelous verse that comes on the heels of the Apostle Paul's distress over not doing the things he ought and doing the things he ought not. As we pick up, Pastor Brogy wants to make sure listeners are sure that their salvation is genuine because there are a lot of ministers of Satan that would do anything to try and give people a false assurance of their security in Christ. So if you are the devil, knowing that the instrument for conversion and sanctification that the Spirit uses is the Bible, then what would you do? Well, you would, number one, try to discredit the truth of Scripture. And as soon as that slimy devil slithers onto the pages of Scripture, you find him doing that. Indeed, he said to Eve, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? But if a man believed in the Word of God, what would you do next? You would try to get that Bible-believing pastor not to study the Word of God. And you would get him distracted with many, many good things. But if I really love the Lord Jesus and I want to show my love to Him and to His people, then I will do what He told Pastor Peter, who is not only an apostle, all apostles are pastors, obviously not all pastors are apostles, but all pastors are, all apostles are pastors. And by example, Peter was told to feed his sheep. That's why there in the Jerusalem church, the apostles told those men, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now, there are many things that I sometimes want to do as a pastor, and I have to discipline myself to say no. Expectations that people have on me, because many times they came from a church where a pastor met those expectations, and that's why they never grew in those churches. And in many of those churches, they never got saved. Why? Because the man of God was not doing what the Word of God told him to do. And so if Satan can keep a man from studying, or if he can convince a man that on Sunday morning you shouldn't open the Scriptures and preach it verse by verse in an expository fashion as Jesus and the apostles and the Old Testament prophets modeled for us because we've reasoned that's too heavy. They'll be turned off if we open the Bible. We'll just keep it really lightweight. If you can do that, then you'll keep people from growing and you will ultimately bring error into the church because the people will be doctrinally illiterate and they will be open to all kinds of error. Now, these are just some introductory comments to prepare us for our study here of the 8th chapter. Now, after you've gone through the kind of struggle that we studied in Romans chapter 7, you would need some encouragement. You would need to know the encouragement given here in the early verses of chapter 8. In fact, if you went through the Romans 7 history in your life, and we all have, then you would probably feel very defeated very guilty, and very discouraged. And you might be open to wildfire 
And you don't need wildfire. You need the Spirit's fire. You need to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. The key to overcoming the struggle that Paul said he experienced as a Christian where he said, the good that I wish I cannot do, I do the very evil I don't want to do, is to walk in the Spirit. So he gives us three truths that every born-again, blood-bought child of God can hold on to. There in your outline, first, we need to understand that there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. Notice how the eighth chapter opens. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If anyone feels like he ought to be condemned, it's the person who says at the end of chapter 7, wretched man that I am. And if God ever had a reason to say, shame on you, get out of my family, it would be after a Romans 7 kind of experience. But he says, no, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Would you circle that little three-letter word now? It emphasizes that this is a standing we now, this moment, can have in Christ Jesus. Now, a lot of people think that it won't be until the end of their life whether they will ever find out whether or not God has accepted them. If indeed salvation were predicated on the things that you do, that would be true, but it's not. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which is a reminder to me that I don't have to wait to know whether or not I am accepted by God. This is why Jesus said this in John chapter 3. You see, most people, when they think of the judgment of God, they think of it way out there in the future, and that when they're dead, at some point in time, God is going to make a determination whether or not they go to heaven or hell. That is so far from what the Bible teaches. Jesus said, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged, but he who does not believe, underscored in your thinking, has been judged already. Why? Because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The judgment has already been determined. Guilty is written across every single forehead. Because of our identification in Adam, we studied in Romans 5, 12, that in the loins of Adam was the whole human race such that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. So we're born with an inclination to sin. Psalm 51 says we're shaped in iniquity. And so Jesus will say, or John will close this great chapter, the third chapter of John, by saying, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus didn't have to come into the world to condemn the world because he's already said the world is guilty. He came to rescue the world. And so there's a positive note in John 5, 24. The Lord said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has this moment eternal life, because eternal life is not heaven, it's a relationship with God that includes heaven, has right now eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Now, if you've not believed, unless you're a little child or you are born with a mental incapacitation and you're unable to reason at all, written across your forehead, if you've not believed, is guilty, condemned because you are still identified with Adam and not with Christ. And so God is not making some future determination. It has already been made. 
But for those who are in Christ, Paul can say there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friend, it would be just as hard for God to condemn Jesus Christ to hell as it would be to condemn me to hell. You say, why is that? Because I'm in Christ. And if I'm in Christ, for me to go to hell, God has to send Jesus Christ to hell. I am identified not in Adam, but now in forever. Eternal life is described in a present tense. Don't tell me you can lose something that's eternal. That's an oxymoron. He who believes has eternal life. There is now, right now and forever, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you have never been born again, if you've only been born once, the Bible says you'll die twice. First physically, and then spiritually, what the Bible calls the second death in the lake of fire. Now understand, there is no condemnation if you're identified in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because your acceptance is not based on your performance, it's based on whether or not you've been identified with the Savior. And so Christianity is not man-centered, it is Christ-centered. And the Spirit of God didn't come to exalt us, He came to exalt Christ. And so the man who thinks he can earn his way to heaven is lost. He hasn't been saved yet. But there are many Christians who know I'm saved by the grace of God alone, but they think somehow they are sanctified by their own human effort. And so if you do something, quote-unquote, what you think is good, then you'll take credit for it. And you will pat yourself on the back. And you will exalt Christ. But the Spirit of Christ didn't come to exalt you. He came to exalt Jesus Christ. And God says, my glory I'll not share with another. So understanding that there is no condemnation because we are holy in Christ Jesus becomes the foundational stone to walking in the Spirit. Most people who have a distorted view of justification end up having a distorted view of sanctification. That's why many of our dear Pentecostal brothers who teach you can lose salvation have a distorted view of how they are sanctified. And we will see in this eighth chapter you cannot lose something that is eternal. So that's the first principle. There is no condemnation. Number two, there is a wonderful liberation. There's a wonderful liberation. Notice now verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, if you're in Christ Jesus, if you've been saved, there are two blessings. Number one, not only is there no condemnation, but there's a new liberation. And he repeats the phrase, in Christ Jesus, because he wants to underscore in our thinking that this is only true of someone who has truly believed. And these two blessings are linked together with that little three-letter word for. Do you see it there at the beginning of verse 2? It's three letters in Greek. It's three letters in English. Some translation will paraphrase it because. What he is saying in essence is there is no condemnation if you are a Christian because the Holy Spirit has set you free. Now understand, Paul is not saying that our new freedom, our new life is the reason we are justified. He is reminding us that the fruit of our justification is that we have been set free in Christ. How do I know that there's no condemnation? Because God has set me free. Jesus said, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. He says, in essence, we know that we are in Christ Jesus. We know that we are not condemned because we have been set free by Jesus Christ. Have you ever been set free by him? Recently, I sat down and shared the plan of salvation with an individual. 
And I explained to him what an incredible offense his sin was. Not per se because he was a bigger sinner than anyone else, but because next to a sinless person, next to one who is infinitely holy, Jesus Christ explained as the glory of God, we all fall short of that glory. But I also explained to him how all of the offenses he had done against God were laid on Jesus Christ, that he bore in his own body upon the cross our sin. And that while he deserved eternal judgment, while he deserved eternal condemnation, Jesus Christ came to take that condemnation. And in a moment, he saw it. And he said, I need this. I want it. And he bowed his head and he prayed the sinner's prayer. And in a moment of time, God the Holy Spirit who had been working on him came to live inside of him. In Jesus' words, he was born a second time. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He, the Father, made Him the Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. The one who had never sinned, who knew no sin, became sin on your behalf there on the cross. How many sins did you committed when Jesus died? Not one. Except the sin you committed in Adam. In one sense, in time and space, it was all in the future. But God saw every wrong unrighteous, wicked, evil thought, deed, or action you would ever commit. And he laid that sin on Christ. The one who knew no sin became sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what you need to have a relationship with God, to go to heaven. You need God's righteousness in Christ. If this uh, handkerchief is Jesus Christ and this watch is me, I am in Christ. So when God sees Carl Brogy, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Now, there was a time when I was outside of Christ, dirty, stained, guilty, separated. And if I died that way or Christ came back finding me that way, I would have become forever that way. But while my body was physically alive and religious, I was spiritually dead. But when I trusted Christ as my Savior and I was wrapped in His righteousness, for the first time ever, God the Holy Spirit could come and indwell me. He could not come and indwell me when I was still stained and separated and my sin had not been paid for justly. The wages of sin is death. Works cannot save you. Number one, they can't remove the stain of sin. And number two, they can't meet the penalty of sin, which is death. Now, if you want to pay for your own sin, you can, but it will take you an eternity. But an infinite God in a finite period of time there on Golgotha paid your eternal debt so that you could have a new birth, so that you could be made alive. And so in a split second, he was born again. It happened simultaneously according to the Word of God. So look again in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And then he further explains in verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Now, I want you to notice here in verses 2 and 3, Paul speaks of three laws. He just mentioned the first one at the end of verse 2, the law of sin and death. Now, what is the law of sin and death? It is simply this. If you've had only one birth, if you've only had a natural birth, then you will be ruled by sin in this life and you will die physically, but not just physically, you will die eternally. It is a law of God. God runs the physical universe with certain natural laws, and He runs the spiritual universe with certain spiritual laws. And if you have only been born once, you will die twice. The Bible is very, very clear. And so a man who is conceived in sin, who has an inclination towards sin and therefore does sin, is 
destined to die. That is the law of sin and death. Now, let me ask you, have you ever experienced that law? And could you verify it by raising your right hand that you've experienced the law of sin and death? Every hand should fly up because unless you think you're sinless, you've experienced the law of sin and death. But there is a second law that he mentions here in verse 2, if you will notice. He speaks of the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Now, you will see that this is a small L. In the Greek New Testament, there are no capitals or lowercase letters. The manuscripts we have are either all uppercase letters or all lowercase letters. And so the translator needs to discern, is this a small spirit referring to your human spirit? Or is this the Holy Spirit? Is this a small L referring to a principle of law? Or is this referring to God's holy law, what we call the Bible? Well, here again, like in chapter 3, he's speaking here about a principle of law, the principle of the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Now, what is that? You see, when you are liberated, when you have a second birth from above, there is a new spiritual principle that begins to operate in your life, and it's called here the law of life in Christ Jesus. Think of it in this way. Think of it in the physical realm for just a moment. There's the law of gravity that informs me that there is a force of attraction between any two objects in the universe. So if I hold my Bible and I let it go, the law of gravity will bring it down to the earth because that is a physical law that God wrote into the physical universe. But when I climbed in an airplane 10 days ago and I flew from the Ukraine all the way to Savannah, Georgia, there was a different law that was functioning. It was the law of aerodynamics, and I'm glad it functioned all the way without quitting on me. Now, the law of gravity would say to that airplane, come down. But the law of aerodynamics would say, come on up. And so as we moved down that runway and we got faster and faster, and as he adjusted the wings, the law of aerodynamics took over and superseded the law of gravity. The law of gravity was still there. But the law of aerodynamics was ruling over the law of gravity. Well, just as there are certain physical laws that govern the physical universe, so there are certain spiritual laws that govern your relationship with God. And so as you walk in the Spirit, the law of the life in Christ Jesus makes you free from the law of sin and death. But suppose on that airplane ride said, man, this is a long trip. I am sick and tired of it. I'm getting out. And I force the, air, the door open and I jump out to get some fresh air. Well, listen, if they ever found me, or if they did and scraped my body off the ground, I'd have no one to blame but myself. Well, the same is true in the spiritual realm. You don't have to live by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. If you choose to sin and rebel against God and not to be filled with the spirit, then the law of sin and death will take over. Now, living the Spirit-filled life doesn't mean that your sin nature is eradicated anymore that as you fly in an airplane, the law of gravity is gone. But in God's economy, there is a new law for the child of God that Paul is going to go into great detail in in this eighth chapter that he wants to live for us to live by. Now, notice there's a third law here. There is the law of sin and death. There's the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. But there is also what he calls here the law of Moses. Uh, or verse 3 says, for what the law? What law is he talking about? The law of Moses. Now, you will see it is capitalized. That's an interpretive decision on the part of the translators. But every English translation, every language I can think of, capitalizes it. Why? Because he's not talking about a principle of law. He's talking about God's holy law, the Mosaic law. And the context is plain. For what the law could not do, 
Weak as it was through the flesh, God did. How? Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Now, what is it that the law could not do? The law could never set us free from the law of sin and death. The Old Testament law says, do this and you will live. The law demanded perfection and none of us were perfect. No one could perfectly keep God's holy law. The law, weak as it was, through the flesh. Remember, we've already seen twice over, really three times over in the book of Romans, that the law was not given to save us, but to reveal us. If I have a 10-foot pole and I stand next to it, the pole doesn't make me 10 feet. It just shows me that I'm not 10 feet. When I look into the law of God, it doesn't make me holy. It shows me that I am not holy. The weakness is not in the law. The weakness is in me. The law was not given to save. The law was given to condemn you. When you look into a mirror, you see your face is dirty. When you look into God's law, you see your soul is dirty. So he says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. And I want you to notice at least three things that God did to solve the problem concerning His holy, righteous standard, what Paul here is calling the law. First, the Bible says he did something in sending his own son. You see that there in that verse? Sending his own son. Now that verse underscores the eternality of Christ. Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Christian Science, and a host of other cults teach that Jesus was created. The Bible teaches Messiah would come from eternity past, that he had no beginning or end, that there was never a time when Jesus did not exist. Jesus Christ had at one point in his life no human body, but he is the eternal God, and God sent him into the world. Now, interesting, the word God in Scripture, usually when you see it in the New Testament, it is a reference to God the Father, but not exclusively. It's the Greek word theos. And yet, it can be applied, the same word, and the context makes it plain, to other members of the Trinity. We've already read this morning from Acts 5, you've not let, lied to, uh, to men, Ananias, you've lied to God. He's very plain. He refers to the Holy Spirit as theos, same word, God the Lord Jesus. In Titus chapter 2, we're told that we are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. In Greek, the way words are structured, there's no question as to what they are modifying by the way the, the words end. God and Savior in the Greek New Testament, as plain in the English Bible, modifies Christ's Jesus. So there, the Lord Jesus is called God. The Spirit is called God. The Father in the verse before us is called God. And we're not surprised by that because each member of the Trinity is equal. And so God the Son, equal with God the Father, left the fellowship and splendor of heaven. And as an act of his own free will, he submitted himself to the Father's world when he came into this world. And he solved the problem of the standard of God's law. But secondly, I want you to notice how God was sent. We call this the incarnation. Uh, the word incarnation is from a Latin word incarno. There's a fourth century Latin translation of the Bible. And a lot of the terms that we cherish, theological terms, we get actually from that Latin translation. In, the prefix has come directly in the English, carno or carnivorous is flesh. So when we speak of incarno, we're speaking of God coming in flesh. Now look at what verse 3 plainly says. 
For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. This is a significant expression, and you want to know what it says and what it does not say. It does not say that Jesus was sent in sinful flesh, because the flesh of the virgin-conceived Son of God was sinless. In Hebrews 4, it says He was without sin. We just read in 2 Corinthians 5, He knew no sin. In 1 John 3, it says, in Him was no sin. And so Paul does not say He came in sinless flesh, because the flesh of the Lord Jesus was sinless. But notice also it does not say he came in the likeness of flesh. That's docetism. That's a first century heresy where they deny the humanity of Jesus Christ. No, Paul said he came in the likeness of sinful flesh because the humanity of Christ was real and at the same time it was sinless. It was both real and sinless simultaneously. And what precisely did the Father do? He sent the eternal Son with no beginning or end into the world. And He did this through a supernatural birth without a human father where He could take on sinless humanity. But third, I want you to notice from verse 3, He sent the Son as an offering for sin. The Bible says He came in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That is, in the flesh of the Lord Jesus, that was both real and sinless, God condemned sin. The judgment you deserve, God laid on His Son, Jesus Christ. This is, in essence, salvation by grace. This verse is the John 3.16 of the book of Romans. So truth number one, to understanding your new life in the Spirit, and these first four verses are just an introduction to what He's going to cover in the first 27. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Truth number two of our new life in the Spirit is there is a wonderful liberation that the Father has set us free from the law of sin and death through the work of Jesus Christ, allowing us to be indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Truth number three for our new life in the Spirit, there is an exciting obligation. Now in verse three, Paul has told us how God liberated us. Now in verse four, as we bring this in for a close, why God liberated us. Why did God send His Son? Not just so that we could be justified, but also that we could be sanctified. Notice verse four, so that, Here's the reason. So that, listen carefully, some of you are daydreaming and you're going to miss it and the devil wants you to miss it because he doesn't want you to walk in victory. And your mind is out there in outer space and what you're going to do this afternoon when you need to gird up your loins for action. Dad, if you want to have the kind of family God's called you to have, you have to be a man of God. You must be spirit-filled. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, in verse 4, there are three major truths about holiness. First, holiness is a major purpose for the death of the Lord Jesus. The ultimate reason that God sent His Son to die for you is not simply that you would not be condemned to hell, though that's part of the reason, but that you might live for His glory, that you might be conformed and shaped to the image of Jesus Christ, that God might be glorified. In our study of the beginning of Romans chapter 8, we have so far looked at the law of sin and death and the law of life in Christ Jesus. And when we return Monday, we'll look at the law of Moses. To listen to this message in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app for Apple and Android devices. 
You can download it from the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. Just look for Search the Scriptures with Dr. Carl Brogy. You can also listen at our website, searchthescriptures.org, or call 877-787-7478 to request a CD or DVD copy. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at the blessings of freedom. Join us then as we search the scriptures. <music>